Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. David Lally here, producer of the show, and I'd like to congratulate Brian on the success of his new book, The Emigrant Edge. It's now a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Amazon bestseller. So if you haven't gotten a copy yet, do yourself a favor, get down to your local or online bookseller. In the meantime, here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. Very excited for you folks today. I got just a wonderful guest, a wonderful man. We've been blessed to get to know one another. Uh, he's spoken at several of our Buffini Company events here in the last couple of years. He's a phenomenal speaker. He's a award-winning sports writer for decades. He's also one of the most widely read authors in the last 20 years, sold more than 35 million copies of his books. He wrote the iconic book, Tuesdays with Maury, which many of you know. And what many of you don't know is the man in his younger days was actually a great musician and was actually considered the Elvis Presley of Crete. Most people <laughs> will never get to know that. Mitch Albom, it is a privilege to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, that's a little bit like being, you know, king of the junk pile, but I'll take it. Thank you for the, that. The best football team in Alaska. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, we're going to dive into some of those things today, but we were talking backstage at our recent Mastermind event, and I was sharing with you that there's not a lot of television programs I watch. I'm a sports guy, mm -hmm. but the one show that I've watched kind of religiously, in fact, I record and have done for a long, long time, was the sports reporters. All the way back to Dick Shap, and then all the way through to recent times. And then I noticed the show came off the air, and we had a great chat. And you were letting me know the show was coming off the air, but that you guys were establishing a podcast. And I believe you just had, what was it, your first two podcasts just this last week, yeah, I believe? Yeah, we just started it here in mid-September. And, yeah, the show ran for nearly 30 years, which yeah. is virtually unheard of. It was the second-longest-running show on ESPN after SportsCenter. Mm. And it wasn't canceled for any reason of failure, or lack of interest, or even sponsorship. It had all those things. But the guy in charge just decided uh, he wanted that slot for a different kind of program, and uh, you know they wanted to get younger in their look, I think, and some other things. So <laughs> we were a victim of that. You know, and it's part of life, certainly in America these days. You can't yeah. be surprised by it. But Mike Lupica, Bob Ryan, all the other regulars, and I, we all spoke, and we said, you know what, they may not want us anymore, but we right. still enjoy doing this. We're not tired. We have things to say. In fact, we have more to say now than we ever did. So right. we established the podcast, and it's out there now. It's the same thing as the show. If, in fact, if, you, if your television picture went out, you would basically have the Sports Reporters podcast. <laughs> That's basically what it is. It sounds the same. It's us. We go a little longer nice, uh, because, uh, you know, we're not constrained by TV, but it's every Monday morning and Friday morning. So wow. we do what happened over the weekends and we preview what's coming up next. That's incredible. Well, I'm delighted. And I think you're going to find that the world of podcasting is an incredibly large niche. And uh, we're a world that is drowning in information and starving for wisdom. And I've always enjoyed the fact that you know, you got some wise heads who've been around the block quite a few times that have seen it, been there, done that, been exposed to all of the ooh and ah of high-level sports and been with all the stars and seen all the things and been to all the places, especially your world. You go from Oprah Winfrey Super Soul Sunday here a few weeks ago to Bob Ryan. I mean, that's quite a <laughs> range, isn't it? <laughs> I won't tell Bob you said it that way, but yes, it is quite a range. But we are looking for, you know, wisdom and insight. And you guys often get into things far more deep and the deeper aspects of sports and so on and so forth. I just love it. Here's a couple of things. I think this would be great, and I think it would whet the appetite for a lot of folks for the podcast. Talk to me about when did you first become a sports reporter? Well, it was by accident, Brian. Uh, I was a musician in New York, as you uh, mentioned, and uh, I was trying to make it in the music world. And, and as such, I worked at night and uh, had my daytimes free and, you know, looking for something to do, anxious at that age in your 20s, you know, you're, you're restless. I picked up a local newspaper in New York that they gave out in supermarkets once a week. It was a freebie. And uh, it said, if you have free time, we could use some help with our newspaper. So I had free time, so I went down to their office, and I was like the youngest person there by 60 years because <laughs> it's mostly retirees and housewives and and uh, they gave me an assignment that night to go cover a, a meeting about parking meters. It was like some zoning <laughs> meeting or something. And that was my first assignment. I went there. I'd never written anything. 
But uh, I, I did see the movie All the President's Men, so I thought I knew how it worked. So I showed up with a pad, and I asked a lot of tough questions about parking meters. And then I basically mimicked what I had read in newspapers. And, and I find, you know, and this is a larger lesson, of course, in all small things there are large lessons, mm. that you absorb creativity by observing it. You don't always necessarily have to be studying it. So I had read a lot of things, read a lot of newspapers, read a lot of books. I'd never tried to write, but apparently I had absorbed Mm. some of the storytelling technique, and I wrote up this story about parking meters the way I thought a newspaper story should read. I gave it to them. The next week I was in the supermarket, picked up the paper, and there was my story on the front page. And uh, it just shows you how slow a news week it was there <laughs> in New York. But it was on the front page, and it gave me this little tingle, you know, to see my name and a mm. story. And I think I became hooked as a writer ever since. And right. then months passed, and I eventually went back to graduate school in New York. While I was there, I was looking for some way to pay my bills besides playing piano in a dive bar. They had an opening at Sport Magazine for somebody to do some small articles. I started there. One thing led to another, and I've been in sports ever since. And again, people who are hugely famous and hugely successful will often say their story just like that. But you talked about something that I think is a very significant thing, which is you got the tingle. I call it the internal tuning fork. Mm -hmm. It's just a deep resonation. It's like, ooh. You know, for me, I had a fear of public speaking. And this little old lady at this church I was at said, we need help with our Sunday school. You're a businessman. Would you teach on some business principles? And I did. And I was terrified and I was nervous. But the first time I did it, I felt that you call the tingle. I had the tuning fork. And I, ooh. And I kept doing it. And the next thing you know, you know, there's 800 people at the Sunday school class and 200 people going to the church. The dynamic is for people, you know, you thought it was music. You went around, you were trying your hardest. And while you were, you know, pursuing what you thought you were supposed to be pursuing, you tried other things. Right. And then you felt that. And all of a sudden, then you went to work. Then you got better at it. Then you started digging in. What year did you start in the sports side of things? Uh, 1982, three, something okay. like that. I, my first real... I did a lot of freelance work, and sure. I, I really chased it. And, you know, I always tell young people, you say, well, how do I get started? I said, well, get busy, because, you know, mm. I spent the first year of my sports writing career on the phone trying to find work. Mm. And I would do things like uh, I would call a newspaper and tell them that I was going to be at some, like, skiing event or something where I saw that they had a local person where I knew they wouldn't send one of their own people. Right. And I said, I'm going to be at the skiing event in Switzerland. Do you care to, you know, have a story if I write it? And they will go, well, yeah, okay, you know, if you're going to be there, we'll give you 50 bucks for that. And then I would hang up and I would see if I could find a cheap air ticket to get to Switzerland because I had no idea that I was going to be in Switzerland. So I, 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 once I got the job, then I figured out the logistics of it. And quite often I would end up spending more money to go write the sure, story sure. than I would get paid for it. But I knew I needed to amass clips in order to get the next job. And I ended up with a good 25 stories that I chased on my own that I then put together in a portfolio and I sent off to a newspaper in Florida uh, actually trying for another job. I was trying to write for their Sunday magazine, and it turns out the guy who, who was handling that job, he looked at my portfolio and it was all sports clips, so he walked it over to the sports editor and he said, listen, you know, I don't think this guy's right for us, uh, but he, he knows how to write, and he writes sports. You guys looking for a sports writer. And next thing I know, I get a phone call from the sports editor now, and he offers me a job. I fly down. I take it. Now, you think about that, Brian. All the things that had to happen hmm. for that to happen to lead to everything else that happened. I had to see their ad. I had to apply for a job I wasn't going to get. The guy who opened my envelope had to not only turn me down, but instead of throwing the envelope away, he had to walk it across to a guy across the newsroom, give it to him. That guy had to take the time to read it. He had to call me. He had to offer me a job. All those things. So when you think life is so in your control right, that, right. you know, if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. Right, right. You just think about these stories and you say you just never know. So right. work hard, throw things against the wall, and you'll be surprised at what bounces back. And the work hard part is big, right? Because Huge. you weren't yeah. waiting to get discovered. You no. were out. You got busy. You were grinding. You basically invented work for yourself every That's time right. you wrote a story. You weren't waiting. 
you, and and you th- you were throwing stuff, and I I do believe you got to hold it all with an open hand. You know, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So you know, you were doing the work, you're doing your thing, but you throw it against the wall and bang. So you end up in Florida. How long did you work for? Uh, I worked two years in Florida, and uh, another story along those same lines. I wanted to get a column. I was writing feature stories, and then the columnist who was there retired. And I thought, you know, I can tell already my, what I like about writing is to write with a voice and an opinion. You know, I, I, I could see that I'm oriented towards that. And I, I wanted to get that job there. And they didn't give it to me because I was too young. Mm. And they said, no, you're too young, you know. And I said, yeah, but you know I can do it. And, well, you're too young. So they ended up hiring a guy who was in his 60s who was fine. He had been at the paper, and they just sort of rewarded him for that. And so because they didn't give it to me, I applied to other places, and I'll give you a perfect example of, you know, like you say, creating work. There was a job opening in Hartford, Connecticut for a columnist. Now, because I hadn't been a columnist before, I had no columns to show them. So I went to the library in Florida, and I got on the microfilm all the events. <laughs> oh, you're that dating were yourself right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm sorry, but that's how old I am. So there was microfilm, and I got all the events that happened in Hartford that week, mm. and I wrote columns based on if I had been there. I wrote a column about a basketball game, you know, based on what had happened. I wrote a column about a, another guy based on something that had happened, and, and I sent five columns. I said, look, Brilliant. I know I don't have any columns to show you, but this is an example of how I would write columns if I had been there during this past week with the events that had happened. You know, take them for what they're worth. Now, that is a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, that took two weeks to just write all these. Because you had to put yourself in the place and imagine it, get all the research and get all this stuff. And it's not like now with a computer, you just punch it all up. Every event, you had to go get a roll of microfilm <laughs> and look at it. It, and I sent it off to this guy, and he ended up not hiring me, and he hired some other guy from Los Angeles who had written columns before. And years later, when I won the first of what ended up turning out to be 13 of these awards for the best columnist in the country, wow. the guy who presented it to me was the editor of the Hartford paper, the sports editor of the Hartford wow. paper. And he handed it to me, and he said, I made a mistake. Uh, it was very nice, and we were laughing, and it was fine, you know. But he said, I should have known when someone went to that kind of effort, mm. I should have seen something there, and I didn't, and I passed it up. Right. And I later got the job at the Detroit Free Press, and I've been there ever since. Wow. I just love that. I mean, obviously, you know my story. I'm an immigrant, came here with 92 bucks. But at the end of the day, you know, that to me, you know, the immigrant edge, that's what that is. You displayed that. You know, you're creating articles for yourself. You're grafting out. People look from a distance. They go, here's Mitch Albom, and he wrote this book about his professor and sold 20 million copies. He's on Oprah. He's on the sports reporters. You know, he's done all these things. He's doing all this charity work in Haiti. He's, you know, never had a bad day in his life. He's a good-looking fella, and he was a musician. Boom. It's all just kind of landed in your lap from day one. Yeah, and, right. And that is how people get themselves so wound up yep. when they don't realize it comes dressed in overalls and looks a lot like work, right? Right. We look too much at the front story yeah. and never at the back story, you know, because we see the front story. Yeah. You know, we're, we're a visual society. We're a, a movie society. We like good-looking people in high-profile places. We like our leaders to be good-looking. Right. We like our celebrities to be good-looking and dressed well and thin and rich. And, all, and we pick people like that, and we, we hoist them up. Mm. But we also envy them. You know, we're kind of angry at them. We, we admire them and are angry at them at the same time, and we never bother to try to find out what went into mm. them getting to that point because I think, as you pointed out, Brian, part of the reason is people don't want to see that, wow, I could have had that if I worked as hard right. as they did, right. you know. But instead it's easier to just say, oh, they just got lucky. Right. They just got lucky. Right place at the right time, yeah. met the right people, got discovered. I mean, people could say that about your story with, when down in Florida, but it's a whole bunch of graft. It's a whole yeah. bunch of graft. And then you allow for providence, for you know, good fortune to shine upon you. What year did you start with the Detroit Free Press? That was 85. Wow. So I've been there 32 years. Wow. Pillar of the community, and wow, what you've seen in 32 years. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's get into the backstory. Talk to me a little bit. You know, you're this young reporter. What were some of the highs where you're just like, wow, I can't believe I'm covering this story, meeting this person. How is this even possible? The pinch yeah. myself moments. What were those? Well, I mean, at the beginning, they were almost every day. You mm. know, uh, I would, because of the job at the Free Press was a columnist, I got to cover everything. And I en- encouraged them to send me 
everywhere. So, of course, I got to go to the Super Bowl for the first time. I got to go to the World Series for the first time. I got to go to the Masters for the first time mm-hmm. in the British Open. But even beyond that, I would encourage them to say, well, send me some odd places. And so I ran with the Bulls in Pamplona uh, <laughs> and wrote a series of columns about that. I went on the Iditarod dog sled race mm-hmm. up in Alaska and covered that for two straight weeks out in a, in a snowmobile and uh, sleeping in the, you know, these, these little converted school places by a coal furnace you know, to try <laughs> to stay warm. I've Amazing. done things with all the Olympic Games from, gosh, from Los Angeles to Korea to Barcelona to uh, China and Athens. and all. Mm. So uh, really every one of those is sort of a pinch-me thing mm. in terms of, wow, I'm getting to see this. And, and, and earlier on, Brian, I also felt that way about people. Like I got to meet Julius Irving, who, mm. you know, Dr. J, who as a kid growing up in Philadelphia, of course, that was, he was a big hero of mine, and he mm. was just towards the end of his career. I got to interview him. I got to meet Mike Tyson and Sugar Ray Leonard and a lot of the big fighters. But what I did notice after a short period of time was that faded very quickly. Mm. The event part of it still fascinates me. If I get to go to places that I haven't been before or see an event that I haven't seen before, I sometimes even just look out a window of an airplane and go, I can't believe it. Look, I'm up in the sky, and these are clouds are below me. I'm flying. (laughs) Yeah, I'm flying. I mean, you know, boy, when you think about it too much, you actually get scared. You say, there's no way that this should work. This thing should be falling out of the sky. I agree. But in terms of people like fame, that wore off very quickly, and I'm Mm. glad that it did. I... I have no magic admiration for fame for fame's sake. Yeah. It means nothing to me to meet somebody who is well-known. And we have watered down the word celebrity oh. so much that it really, in many, many cases, means absolutely nothing but that you stuck yourself in front of a camera, either having sex or making fun of somebody or screaming or whatever, and suddenly right. you're famous. Yeah. These are things that, if anything, you should be infamous for, not, not famous. So right. I lost a lot of that. But the sense of wonder really is is still there, Uh, you know, just getting to see even some amazing sports competitions that take place today. Yeah, and it's amazing. We're so celebrity-driven. My father, you know, is 86 years of age in Dublin. And, uh, you know, when you've been around the block that long, you know, you experienced it with Maury. There's just some great insights that I get from my dad. You know, he's been to the circus. He's seen it all. And he said to me the other day, he goes, you know, Brian, a person can be as famous as they want to be if they have no shame. That's you know? correct. That's right. We have become a society that bullies and shameless can run right to the front of the line mm. uh, because nobody wants to take them down or they don't want to be embarrassed publicly. Right. But I, I have to be candid, Brian, and you're, you know, you're kind enough to ask me about my careers or successes, but I need to point out that for the first like, 10, 12 years of my you know, uh, sports writing stuff and when I was doing a lot of things and you know, rising up and getting awards and things. I was very selfish. Mm -hmm. I was very ambitious. I was very focused on myself and my accomplishments. And it really wasn't until I encountered Maury and went through that whole kind of transformation that I had my eyes open to how foolish and myopic I had been being Mm -hmm. to that point and what path I was headed on. And and I was very blessed to have death come into my life at a young age. And Mm -hmm. I know that sounds like a weird sentence, but... But, you know, uh, watching Maury die in front of me and seeing what was important to him and what wasn't important to him was the greatest gift that I could have had at that young age. I was only 37, and I was still young enough to do something about the path that I was on, and it really did change after that. So a lot of the nice things that you're paying me compliments for or that maybe I've figured out didn't come until I had an epiphany. Right. And let's talk about that for a second, because... I would challenge you in this way, in that, because I've heard you say this on numerous occasions, I think you were on the normal path. I mean, you were were ambitious, you were driven. I mean, I love the story when you were a kid going to Crete, just trying to figure it out. (laughs) I I love the story of the guy getting the microfilms. I love the story of writing the comms. I just think that's spectacular. And that natural drive that was there, there was a hunger and a drive inside of you, which many, many successful people have. I have it myself. And then you came to a place where you're grinding, grinding, grinding. You were trying to do the best you could. Then you got exposed to something that took you out of the realm of success and took you into this world of significance and things of purpose and things that meant so much more. And, you know, again, your old professor shows up on, was it Nightline you were watching the TV program? It wasn't just that he was my old professor. He was extremely close to me and me Mm. to him when I was in college. Mm. I, I walked into his class the very first day, 
And it was kind of funny because I was going to drop the class because it was so small. There were only nine people in the class with one of these little seminars. And I said, oh, no, if I stay in this, I have to go to every single one. Cause <laughs> Nowhere to gonna hide. Know, you're going to know if I'm not there, if I'm cutting it. Yep. So I was actually leaving the room to uh, go drop the class at the registrar, and wow. he started calling roll. And, you know, when your last name begins with A, you can't get out fast <laughs> hey, enough. I'm a B. I'm the same yeah, way. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be a Z. And so he said Mitchell album, and I was... You know, I was in the hallway almost, and I could have just kept walking because he uh-huh. wouldn't have known it was me, but I didn't because I was, felt guilty. Mm. And I always say, you know, in that moment, look at what changed in that wow. moment that I turned to come back into the room instead of walking out. Yeah. And my whole life would have been different if I had continued walking mm. out. And I, I raised my hand, and I said, well, here I am. You know, I'm Mitch Albin. And he said, is it Mitch or Mitchell? Which do you prefer? And, you know, no one had ever asked me that as a teacher because they just pick your name off the thing, and then that's who you are. And I have one of those names. I could be Mitchy, Mitchell, Mitch, whatever. So I said, well, Mitch, I prefer Mitch. My friends call me Mitch. And he said, well, Mitch it is. And Mitch, and I said, yeah. He said, I hope one day you'll think of me as your friend. Wow. And so, you know, I, I knew cutting the class was out of the question <laughs> at that point. But, but that began this really amazing relationship. Right. And we, right. I ended up taking every class he offered. I ended up majoring in sociology. He became my, I don't know, more than just a mentor. I mean, I was really young when I went to college. I was 16 when I left oh, college. Wow. So I needed an older person to kind of guide me and walk me through some of the stuff. And by senior year, I mean, by the time graduation came, you know, he was crying that I was graduating. And, mm. and, and I left and I promised him I would stay in touch. And then I didn't. You know, I, I just got ambitious. And this is what I mean by ambition for ambition's sake. Mm. I got ambitious, and I started traveling. And I wanted, went into music, and then I went into sports writing. And I just never called. I right. never called. I never went to see him. I never kept in touch with him. I broke that promise for 16 years. So when I saw him on Nightline, and he was talking to Ted Koppel about what it was like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease, this progressive neurological disease that robs you slowly of everything that you and I consider living you know, from, from walking to holding something to brushing our teeth to putting on our clothes to wiping our own rear ends. It's all taken away one at a time until you're basically like a, a useless husk. You're just lying in a chair, but, but yet your mind is 100% there. And so you have to observe this horror right up until the day you die. And he's telling Ted Koppel about this already under the effects of it, and I see him on the television set. And then you're flooded with guilt about, oh, you know, wow, what have I been doing for the last 16 years? I, I didn't even call this guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I like to say that I got on an airplane and raced right out there and threw myself at his feet and apologized, but that wasn't the case. I called him after several days of deliberation. Mm-hmm. You know, like, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? I got his phone number. I called him, and I was really prepared to just call you know, kind of get myself off the hook. Leave a message. Guilt-wise. Yeah, leave a message or, or have a brief conversation. And I used to call Maury Coach when I was in college. I don't know, it was just a nickname I had for him that I had totally forgotten about. And, and when I called his number and he picked up the phone, I heard his voice, and I said, um, Professor Schwartz, I didn't even say Maury, I said, Professor Schwartz, this is Mitch Album. I was a student of yours in the 70s. I don't know if you remember me. And the first thing he said to me after 16 years was, how come you didn't call me Coach? Wow. And so I felt so... Born and guilty that I ended up by the end of that conversation promising to come visit him. That turned into the first Tuesday. I was so taken with who he was in person. He just, I mean, he was in a wheelchair already. He was already limited in his capacities, but he was so full of love and life and, and light and, and, and so devoid of like small, stupid little things and jealousies and anger. And, and I just said, you know, I want to be like this. And how is he like this when he's 78 and dying and I'm nowhere near like that and I'm 37 and healthy? Mm. And so I started to go back and one Tuesday led to another and to another and all the Tuesdays he had left in his life. And the book came out of it just as a way to pay his medical bills. It was the first time I ever did anything that wasn't for ambition mm. because he had told me halfway through that he didn't have the money to pay for his bills, and uh, he was going to leave an enormous debt to his family, and he that bothered him more than dying. That mm. uh, you know, first he would die, and then his family would have to sell the house to pay for his bills. And so, all I knew how to do was write, and mm-hmm. so I went around to New York and uh, to different publishers and told them what was going on, and gave them some examples, and wrote a few sample pages, and said, you know, I just want to write this book to pay his medical bills. I just need exactly the amount of money to pay his bills. And almost every one of them, Brian, said no, mm. not interested. No way, boring, you're a sports writer, it's depressing, we don't want... 
And I would have given up, you know, if it hadn't been that I was being driven by a different force than just my right. own. You know, right. if it was just for me and you want to, you know, if it's just for you and you want to be liked and you want to do something that's popular yeah. and all these people are telling you no, then you go, okay, I guess it's not the right thing. Let me think of something else that they'll tell me yes to. But there was nothing else. This yeah. was only this. And so I kept going until I found one publisher that was willing to do it, mm. and they gave us the money before Maury died, three weeks before he died. Jeez. And uh, I gave it all to him, and I said, here's, just pay your bills, and uh, you won't have to worry about that part of it. And I always tell people, for me, Tuesdays with Maury kind of ended there mm. in terms of, you know, I had kind of finally come full circle, and with all this ambition in me, had done one nice thing, for this old man who had done so many nice things for me. But, of course, I hadn't even written the book yet. The book writing began after he passed away. So that was the turning point for me, for him, and, as it turned out, for my career in life. Wow. And I would argue with you that the same grift that got you to Florida, the same drive that you wrote the articles for the paper in Hartford, the same ambition that had been maybe overcooked in one area and overdeveloped in one area that same drive could be used for good because you had publisher after publisher after publisher tell you no. Now you had a, a bigger purpose and so on and so forth, but those gifts and those skills you developed, they stood to you, right? Your past can help you with your future, and I think uh, right. what an That's amazing right. deal. You just have to find the way to get your drive. Like ambition by itself is not bad. Right. Success by itself is not bad. It's just when it becomes the only thing you focus on. Right. Or it becomes its purpose and its own thing. Making money isn't bad. No. Nope. By I mean look at all the good you can do with it. It's just when it becomes your only reason. You know, yeah. you're making money for the sake of making money. You're making money to amass it instead of to give it away or to help other people. So you have to separate the ambitious act right. from the ambitious emotion. Right. And you're right. I use the ambitious act. I was tireless. You know, let's go to another publisher. Let's go to another one. You know, I mean, they were throwing me out left and right. You know, I was like <laughs> getting thrown out of one window and bouncing up and going to another one. And, you know, I wasn't going to take no for an answer because I didn't want to disappoint him. Right. And so that, as you say, that was using whatever you want to call it, my stubbornness or my drive or my ambition, but using it for a good purpose. And I, I, do that I think it's the thing. contrast between ambition and selfish ambition. Right. I think ambition is a virtue, but selfish ambition is anything but a virtue. That's right. And so you had that ambition and that drive, and now you were using it for a healthy purpose, for something more meaningful. And never did you think in your wildest dreams that this selfless act of service, of giving back, of honoring a relationship, and again... You know, I love the fact that you're so honest about saying you didn't handle it perfectly. We've all grown distant from relationships. We've all dropped the ball. We've all had people we, we meant to stay in closer contact with and, and didn't and had that happen. We've all had that dynamic. But here you right. got this chance. You got a chance to kind of have a do-over to some degree, do some good. And then here you are. It was 20 years ago. And right. the last 20 years of your life have been remarkable in regards to all the success you were ever looking for, but now you had a new attitude, as the Pointer Sisters would say, right? Right. And I had the years of uh, experience to know what to do with it. Right. I always talk to athletes about, you know, you'll meet different types of athletes, different arcs, and some of them will kind of come into the league as a low draft pick, yeah. and they'll get minimum salary in the NFL or the NBA or whatever, but it turns out they have this ton of talent, and eventually they kind of rise up to the top, and when they're 30 years old, they get you know, the big contract or whatever. And then there's the kids who come out of high school with all this promise, and you know, the big, and they're getting those contracts when they're 18, 19. Sometimes they're out of the league by the time they're 24. And same thing with entertainers and singers. You know, because of my music background, I've, I've met a lot of singers, and I'm close with a lot of singers and, and, and musicians. In the world. And I always ask the ones that had success late or later, and they always say, oh, I'm so glad it happened this way and not mm. the other way around. Yeah. I never would have been able to handle it correctly if it had happened that way. And, and I, in looking at my life, that's the same. I had a good amount of success when I was younger, but not like I've had since. Mm. And even what I had earlier was spinning me around and making me, you know, lose my compass. And it was only when I sort of started putting, as you say, that, that same drive towards I don't want to say I, I didn't go to Oregon and sit in a tree and hum all day. You know, it wasn't. I mean, and, and, and neither did Maury want me to do that. Right. You know, some people, you know, need to be reminded that Maury liked the fact that I wrote. Yeah. He just would say to me, write 
and do something good with your writing. You know, keep your column and call attention to problems in society. Do a radio show, but put on people who have something to say. He never said, you know, oh, drop everything, live in a bed sheet. You know, yeah. it, it, and that's, you know, I don't think you have to do that to be a good person or to do good. Right. But you have to have those principles as your driving force. So this has always been the question I've wanted to ask you. You have this epiphany. You have this experience. You probably didn't realize to the degree of your life was about to change. But every Tuesday with Maury obviously had a profound impact on you. It shows up all over the writing. So now you go back. You've got this new perspective. You've probably been exposed to you know, some of your own selfish ambition. You've been exposed right. to the fact that you here's a meaningful mentor. You're Mr. Miyagi. You didn't stay in touch with. And now you've gone through this experience. You've, you've heard from this wisdom. You've sat at his feet again. He's sharing with, you know, the goofiness of consumerism, the keeping up with the Joneses, all of the principles that Maury shared, so profound. Now, how do you go back into the world of the me, 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 did you look at me, thump my chest, I just scored a touchdown, I, I need more playing time, I need a bigger contract, how am I supposed to live on $13 million a year and I choke out the coach? How do you go back to the sports world with this new perspective and not lose that? Like, this is a complete waste of time. How did you do that? Because my job as a columnist and as a, as a broadcaster of opinion, you know, on the sports reporters, enabled me to do exactly what you just did, to take all of those things in the sports world that are myopic and are selfish and are ridiculous and point them out. Mm. And that basically became the position that I took, and not just a cynical position of this is ridiculous, this guy, this guy says he can't survive on $13 million. this is terrible, look how he's thumping his chest. Not just that, but to bring up the stories of the smaller athletes, the mm. guys who ran aback. If you read my columns and the things that I've written in sports over the years, I'm much more often focused on losers and second-place finishers mm. and smaller things than I do on you know, the star quarterback getting the big deal. Very I mean, un-American of you. Yeah, well, there's, but there's enough other Americans doing that. But I'll give you one perfect example, because people frequently ask me, especially as I get older in, in sports writing, you know, and they start wanting to put you in a museum, mm -hmm. what was the best story you wrote? You know, mm -hmm. what was the best story? And they all expect me to tell them about, like, a Muhammad Ali fight or, a, you know, a seventh game of a World Series. And I say, okay, I'll tell it to you, but you're not going to know probably what it was. And they'll say, what was it? I said, well, it took place at the Olympics. Oh, I'll know the Olympics. I said, you might not know this. I had gone, I think it was 92, and I had gone to the stadium, the big, you know, athletic stadium early because Carl Lewis, you know, one of the most famous Olympians of all time, was going to run in the 100 meters, I think, that night. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was going to be hard to get a seat because the whole world was going to come watch Carl Lewis try to win whatever gold medal it was. So I went early. And when you go early to the stadiums, you see a lot of the, the heat and the, you know, stuff like that that's going on that nobody comes out to see. Yep. So I'm sitting in my seat, and I'm watching a heat of a 400-meter race, which is once around the track. And, you know, at the Olympics, I mean, there's a 1,000 people show up for every race at the Olympics. You don't see them because they don't show you the heats. They just right. show you the last eight. Yeah. But, you know, to get to the last eight, you've got to start with 100 and yeah. work your way down. That's where the so Irish guys normally start. Yeah, that's where, that's where the Irish guys in the sprints usually disappear. That's yeah. right. And so I'm watching one of those races. I'm sure there was an Irish guy in it. Yep. And, uh, you know, the gun goes off. There's no, you know, there's nobody clapping. and Everybody's distracted. They're all doing other things. And this one guy's running around the track, and all of a sudden I see he pulls up lame. Mm. You know, he must have popped a hamstring or something like that. Happens frequently in the sprints, and he falls down on the track. No reaction from anybody, whatever. It just happened. But I'm watching him, and everyone else keeps running. And all of a sudden, out of the stands comes this guy, kind of an older guy, heavy set guy, and he runs onto the track. This was obviously before 9 11 and security mm. and all the rest, but mm -hmm. he runs onto the track. And he lifts this young man up, and he puts him on his feet. You know, like he puts his foot on his feet, and he starts walking him around the last quarter of the turn, which is what he had left. And everyone else has finished. You know, let's say they finished in 40 seconds. This is now a minute 10, a minute 20, a minute one. And he's walking him, and suddenly people start nudging each other. Look, 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 look. And they start standing up, and they start clapping, you know, one, clap clap, clap, and trying to get him step, step, and the kid is crying, he's, he's bawling, and the guy is holding him, and he walks him across, and he gets him across the line, and when he crosses the finish line, he collapses. Well, okay, immediately, I run downstairs 
to go. F- I have no idea who this is. I had to look up the guy's number. He's British. That's all I know. I've never heard of this guy mm-hmm. before. I run downstairs, and I catch this guy in the tunnel, the older guy. And I grab him. There about five other people. Now, later, years later, you'll hear like there were a thousand people there. Yeah, there were right. five. I was one of the five. <laughs> and we grabbed him. I said, who are you? And mm-hmm. he said, that's my son. Mm-hmm. The guy's name was Derek Redmond. Yeah. He said, that's my son. And I saw him fall, and I couldn't help it. I know you're not supposed to run on the field, but I ran onto the track because I know that if he doesn't finish and he doesn't cross the finish line, then he's not recorded in history. It's as if he never ran the race. Mm. And I knew he lost, but I wanted him to at least years later be able to look back and, and know that he took part and he tried. And he said, I taught him how to run, and when he was just two and three years old, I would put him on my feet. I'm getting goosebumps telling mm-hmm. you the story. I would put him on my feet and walk him, and that's what I did now. You know, I taught him how to run, and that's what we did now. And he, like the father with the son when he was two and three, walking him on his feet. Now here he is, a grown man, and he's doing the same thing out of love for his son to get him across the finish line. Mm. And that story, I wrote it, and you know, still one of the most popular things I've ever written. And no one knew the subject. Yeah. There was no money involved. He wasn't a winner. He wasn't even close to a winner. Right. This was a heat. And yet that was everything that I wanted to say mm. about sports and how sports can be great. That's and great. So it's a long-winded answer to no. your question about how do you go back after you're enlightened. Well, because, you know, I always sort of had that view of this is what matters and this is the stories that need to be told, and I focused on those kinds of stories. Well, this is why we're brothers from a different mother, because for 10 years at our events all across North America, I would show that clip to people. Ah, I, all right. And so, so I know, know Derek Redmond. Yeah. I know his father. I can see uh-huh. him. It's not just a cry. It's like you can see his jaws. He's wailing, but right. his dad was there for him. And, you know, again, why do I show that stuff? Because that's the stuff that inspires people. Because I can't relate to LeBron James. Right. I can't. He's six foot eight, two 250 pounds, has, I don't know what, 38, 40-inch vertical, 42. He runs like a deer. You know, I've seen him on the court. The court opens up like the Red Sea. I can't relate to that. But I can relate to Derek Redmond because I've had that happen in business. I've had it happen in life. And I think people can relate to that. And I think that's the power of when the essence is brought to something like sports. And I think... You know, when true values and principles are brought, it's the common experience, and that's really what people remember, too. That's right. You've been at this now 30 years. How have you seen the dynamics of sports change in the culture? How do you see sports perceived today compared to 30 years ago? Yeah, uh, it's quite different, and it's not good. There are several things that have happened that have made it so. One, the money is out of control. I mean, when I started, and 30 years ago is not that long, but even when I started, there were guys in the sports who worked in the off-season, their regular jobs. Yeah, Herm Edwards has spoken for us. Herm Edwards has a job. He's on ESPN every night. He had a job while playing football. Well, they needed to, yeah, yeah, because he didn't earn. He he left the game before, you know, your rookie contract took care of you for the rest of your life. I mean, there are guys now like this – you know, uh, Lonzo Ball, uh, came, you know, who's yeah. signed with the Lakers and kids like that who come out. They literally, before they ever actually do anything in professional sports, they don't have to work again for mm-hmm. the rest of their life. Right. Imagine what that does to your, your sense of perspective. Yeah. And so that has changed dramatically. And so athletes have kind of gone to the moon. Also what has changed is athletes don't need media anymore, mm-hmm. but they create their own. In the old days, they needed to be concerned about their image. They needed to behave themselves. They needed the press to, you know, tell their stories because otherwise, who else is going to discover them? Now, they've got their own Twitter accounts. They say whatever they want on their Twitter accounts when they want to say it. They release the news about themselves only when they want it released. They hold all their exclusive videos for themselves. They sell their own shirts. They sell their own... So everyone who comes out is his own sort of little mini corporation. Right. And if you're not beholden to anyone else to sort of tell your story and you can craft your own image, right. then what they do is they hire marketing people to basically make them look as good as possible. And you're not really getting to know the athlete. You're getting to know the image of the athlete. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not an accident that you can now watch commercials where athletes are participating in these video games where you honestly can't tell the difference between is that really him or is that his video version of him doing it? And 
really to the average young fan, it doesn't make a difference mm. because they're all superheroes. Right. And, uh, you know, they're all bigger than life and not real and not subject to human emotions or frailties or things like that. So I find it very hard, as you said, to relate to a lot of these younger superstar athletes. I think they're almost like cartoon characters mm. to the younger people. They're almost like Marvel superheroes. Wow. That's not what I always enjoyed about sports. I enjoyed the humanity of it. Right. Let me ask you this. So this whole dynamic has changed, and I, I see this, and I, I think it's great that you're articulating it. Mo so many people have seen it. How has the sports writing business changed from where it was 30 years ago? It's almost evaporated. You know, writing is the last refuge now of sports, and I see it in kids coming out of school. You know, when I went to journalism school in Columbia to get a master's degree, one of the finest schools in the world for journalism. Uh, I don't know how they let me in, but I got in. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you that of our class, let's say we had 100 kids, only 10 of them were going into broadcasting. Mm. And the other 90 were going into writing. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they wanted to write for newspapers or magazines. Today, I would, I would venture that that's totally reversed. Really? I would say wherever you're journalist, you've got 90 going into broadcasting and 10 going into print. Wow. Newspapers are drying up left and right. They're closing. Their sports sections are limiting. If they even have a sports section, they don't send their writers anywhere because it's too expensive. So they just pick up wire stories on events that are outside of their backyard. And basically, they just cover the teams that are in their own backyard. You know, with the exception of a New York Times, a Boston Globe, an L.A. Times, maybe a Chicago Tribune. You know, other than that, very few papers are, are sending anybody anywhere anymore. Mm. And, of course, with the Internet and with the ability of anybody to create a blog that looks like a news site. You know, all you mm. need is the right font. I mean, you know, when we were in, when we were in, uh, in, in journalism school, they told us, you know, you've got to learn how to write, report. Right. Today, all you've got to do is learn what font to get. And, yeah. you know, if you get a font that looks like the New York Times, and then whatever you write looks like the New York Times. Right. And so it really has changed so dramatically. And I'll, I'll tell you something, maybe too inside baseball, Brian, but... A lot of writers in sports have become very scared now, and they, they don't really write the truth or they don't go after the hard truth because people can comment on their stories now mm. and when they appear on the web. So you'll write a story, and I've always objected to this. You know, I've spent 32 years in journalism. I've got a master's degree in it. I have studied it. I'm bound by the ethics of it. And I could write a 100-inch story, and as soon as my last word is printed, you know, an eighth of an inch below it is a comment by right. some guy whose nickname is Balls Out 69. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and he says, oh, this guy sucks. Right. You know, and it's like, you know, well, wait a minute. Yeah. How are we on the same place? Right. When you and I were growing up, if you wanted to comment on a story in the newspaper, you had to write a letter. Yep. You had to get a stamp. You had to send it to the newspaper, to the editor. You had to put your home address because they wouldn't print it if you didn't say who you were. And maybe they would pick it to put it in the paper to react to something they saw. Now you can be anybody, totally mm. anonymous. You could be the guy's worst enemy, and you start commenting on stories. Well, this has a cumulative effect on mm. the writing and the reporting because people get, you know, they're human, and they don't want to be lambasted, and they don't want to be made fun of, and they don't want to be criticized. So if they're in a college town, for example, where the only sport is the college football team, and the coach is a real jerk or he's doing some stuff that he shouldn't be doing, in the old days, you know, that was their job to sort right. of report on it. Now they'll shy away from it because they don't want the entire town to jump on the website and, and demand that you be fired, you know, yeah. or, or threaten you. So that's another big way that it's changed. Well, you know, it's funny. My son played football at SMU, right? And there's the school that, you know, received the ultimate penalty from the, the NCAA, right. which they probably would never do again. And the same reporters that were involved in that were commenting recently on the Baylor scandal. Whatever was going on and people paying rent and this and that and the other SMU, what happened at Baylor was so much more shockingly bad uh, with sexual abuse and all these kind of yep. stuff, but nobody was asking the questions right. because they right. go, Waco's a small town. And the social media dynamic, it's like anonymous people from whatever, and there's no filter. I find it amazing that organizations that have these great brands will allow these feeds to go on underneath great articles and great insight. Yep. And it's from the lowest common denominator. Well, I'll tell you exactly why they do it, Brian, because it's a click. And they live in the world of clicks mm. now. You know, newspapers, I've worked for television, I've worked for radio, I've worked for newspapers. The great thing that I always enjoyed about newspapers that was different from the other two was that you didn't get rated. 
in the newspaper business. There were no ratings. Hmm. So all you knew is if the newspaper sold or not. Well, if somebody plunks down 50 cents for a newspaper in the old days, 25 cents, 10 cents, Mm -hmm. you didn't know if they were buying it for the front page story or for the horoscope. You had no (laughs) idea. All you knew was that they were buying it. So consequently, everyone was allowed to operate based on good human principles, what they thought was good news and good reporting. Whereas in television, they get ratings, and they get ratings every minute, so they can see, well, if we report on crime, our ratings go up. If we report on education, mm. our ratings go down. Mm-hmm. So what do they end up doing? Right. They report on crime. When we talk about weather, everybody watches. So, so what do they do? They do five minutes of weather a night on local news. Why? You know, all it takes is, is it's going to rain tomorrow. Back to you, Jim. You know, that's all you really need to do. But they have learned that you get ratings by talking about weather. So mm. that's why they have the Doppler and the H's and the L's and the big things. So all of that news, quote-unquote news, is actually driven by ratings. And newspapers mm. were blissfully left alone from this for years until Mm. the internet came in and now the internet and because newspapers are moving to digital forms it gets clicks and that's their ratings and that's how they sell their advertising based on now you know you have to show them how many hits did this story get how many hits did this story get and so now you see much more explosive stories and opinionated stories and stories about donald trump and sort of whatever's going to you know, get the clicks, and that's why they allow people to make comments, because every time someone comes on to make a comment, it's another click. So this is the dance with the devil that the journalism business has gone into, and I find it abhorrent, and I have voiced my opinion on it, but, you know, I work for it, and I don't control it. Well, here's the good news. You've just taken a major step this week to go into the world where the market is, which is people are looking for niches, and niches are becoming massive in the world we live in today. And I am so fired up that you guys have started your own podcast. And the Sports Reporters Podcast on iTunes, on Apple, you can find it wherever podcasts are played. I think it's going to be huge. Huge. Um, <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. And and here's why. You know, Bob Ryan, I'm not just – I'm a Celtics fan, obviously. In fact, in Ireland they call them the Celtics. You know you're, you're a huge yeah. author in Ireland. I love Ryan Lupica, character, charisma – you know, that New York edge, but been there, done that. And I think there's a shortage of wisdom drowning in information, and and I really think you guys are going to see this in a way you've never seen it before. Here's the thing. You guys have this iconic brand of the sports reporters show that gets, let's be honest, I can say it, you can't say it. It got canceled for trend reasons. The ratings were great. You guys had sponsorship. The show was still cranking. People were still watching. People like me still recording. And it's just, it was, let's find something that's more trendy, that does this with the culture, does that, da 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 da, da. Uh, Last night, the Chargers were playing the, the Broncos, and, hey, we have a woman play-by-play, and we have this and that. It's like, that became the story. And I just think it's exciting you guys are doing this. I think it's going to be great. I think uh, I will be a regular listener. Thanks. And uh, I think it's going to be awesome. Let me do this before I let you off the hook here today. I ask five questions of every guest that kind of looks inside the, the world a little bit. Just a, It'll give us a little different view of Mitch Albom. We'll do a little rapid-fire question, and I want to ask you just a couple of parting thoughts on what to expect on the Sports Reporters podcast. So here's the first one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? That giving is living, mm. and you will discover that taking only makes you feel like your time is limited, but when you give, you're going to feel more alive. Where did you get that from? Maury. Nah, of course. Of course. Well, you've done a great job of that, and one of these days maybe we'll have you back on and talk about your work in Haiti and what you've done there and, and how even folks can get involved there. I think uh, sure. giving is living. Beautiful thing. All right, here's the next one. What's the one talent or gift you wish you possessed that you currently don't? <laughs> I wish instead of mimicking Elvis Presley, I could actually <laughs> sound like him. Because I would have been doing something else. I would have been interviewing you after all my records. I'm married to a great singer. My wife is a wonderful singer. Mm. That's what she made her living. But currently she doesn't do a lot of it, you know, you know a little around the house. But yeah. and, and I always say to her, sweetheart, if I had your voice, I'd put down this pen. I'd put down this computer. I would just be singing everywhere. I, I just wish I, I have an okay voice. You know, I was able to get by. But I don't have a great voice. And if I had a great one, if I had Elvis's voice... I'd have tried to live Elvis's life. Not the way he did it, <laughs> yeah, right. but just making the music. 
I'm not into peanut butter sandwiches, yep. with marshmallows, and all, but but uh, <laughs> but the music, and uh, that's the one talent I wish, uh, I wish, wish, wish I. Had. You know, the number one answer I get is play an instrument. So you know how to play uh, the piano pretty good. Yes, yeah. you can. That I can do. But those who play instruments wish they could sing. Yep. Those who sing wish they could play instruments. Those yep. who can't do either wish they could do either. It's, yep. That's we all want what we do. Ballers want to be rappers, and rappers right. want to be ballers. That's yep. right. That's right. Okay, what book has been most instrumental in your life? Oh. uh... Wow. Well, there's always the Bible, which right. you know takes a, you know, but that's probably a stock answer. Yeah. There's a book called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I don't imagine that too many of your listeners probably are familiar with it, but it is an amazing novel, and I think you probably like it, Brian. And it's kind of in that Irish storytelling tradition of mm. of, a, of an older person kind of recounting their life in a small town, and it's a pastor, a, a preacher a religious man who's reached the end of his life, and he's telling his life story to uh, like a six- or seven-year-old boy who is his son. He got married again very, very late in life, Mm. uh, and he has a child, and he realizes he's not going to be there for him when he gets older, so he's laying out sort of everything that he'll need to know before he dies. And it is so beautifully written, and uh, like every other sentence is just this gem that I've copied and written down, Mm. that by the time I... Have when I finish it, or now when I even just look at pages of it, I am inspired to just sit down and attempt to write. I'll never get to that level of beauty, mm. but I am inspired to attempt to reach for it. And I think any book that can make you want to write is a unique book, and therefore, you know, when you say the best book or whatever, I mean, there are all a thousand stories, mm-hmm. obviously, that I love. And what, but if a book makes you want to close it and sit down and try to write, mm. then it's unique. And for me, that's what that book is. Interesting. And isn't it so interesting? I've heard from so many people that the book that makes them want to do that is Tuesdays with Maury. So <laughs> something was passed on there. That's brilliant. Thank okay, you. what's your jam? What song, what artist is... Uh, when you're in the car by yourself and it's just you and you're looking to get back into a good mood or whatever else, what's the song you listen to that's uh, or the artist? Well, More Today Than Yesterday by The Spiral Staircase. Oh, I know that song. Yes. Okay. It's, it's the most upbeat. I uh, love you upbeat. more today than yesterday. Yeah, but from the, from the minute that it starts playing... It's got a, a big horn section thing. So honestly, you know, that feeling that you have that, oh boy, I'm going to get in a good mood, uh, you know, because you, you hear a certain musical riff. That happens to me the very first time that starts playing. Awesome. I mean, it's here. Okay. I defy anybody to be in a bad mood as soon as that starts playing. You know, I'm in a good mood now. I just heard 10 seconds That's of it. That's awesome. So. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. And uh, we'll probably end up having to pay some royalties on that one, but I'm happy to. Whoever's Sorry. still alive. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. Love it. Okay, last but not least here. What movie do you watch over and over again? If you're ever channel surfing, you're just vegging out, which I know you don't get to do much of, and it comes on and you're looking through the channels and it's on and you always have to stop. What's that one? That's easy. That's uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Ah. Stewart. I've watched that. I, I, I've watched it so many times and now I limit myself just to Christmas time <laughs> because uh, it, it fits the mood and if I've watched it every week, I guess I would get sick of it. But I literally know every single line to that movie and yeah. not only is it a beautifully made Frank Capra movie, but the spirit of it mm. about, you know, you never know how you affect the world and if you really were to look back on every single person that you interacted with the world would be so different if you weren't in it that is really a philosophy of every book that i've written you mm. know uh, fiction or non-fiction i so believe that that's true and i so believe that once you understand that you know every life matters and every life touches another life and touches another life then there's no such thing as a bad day or a meaningless day or a meaningless existence or a meaningless job or a meaningless world or whatever all these things we fight against to try to find some kind of meaning you have meaning simply because you interact with people Mm. and you change them and they change you and that you're a ripple in the pond and that movie so beautifully does it you know and of course it's got 
Jimmy Stewart and all the great acting mm. there and Barry Moore and everybody. So that's number one, two, three, four through ten. That's great. And, well, and then, I, then I move on to The Godfather yep. and other ones like that. All the that. classics. Well, yeah. it is an awesome deal. And uh, your book, The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto, definitely reflect that spirit of that Capra storyline yeah. and uh, taking you down and bringing you up. And I think uh, Tuesdays with Maury, can you imagine what the, the coach would think today, 20 years after his passing, of what's happened with your work, with his story, and how many lives it's, it's transformed and brought Well, I wonder about that, to. and I often say, you know, if heaven is a place where we do get to see those who left before us and talk to them, I, the first question I'm going to ask him is, you know, how did I do? Yeah. And I just pray that he says you did okay. Yeah. Because, you know, it is someone else's life that you have in your hands when they're gone and you're telling their story, and you must always be respectful of that. And, yeah. Uh, I've tried, and I, I hope he's pleased. Well, there's two words that are told in the Bible of people that get to that stage, and, and the words are often well done. And you have done a lot of things well, from sports reporting to your writing to your music, to your speaking, which many people don't know how gifted and talented a presenter you are. It's been a great pleasure to have you at our events and, and will again in the future, Lord willing. Give us this. What can folks expect with the Sports Reporters podcast? What can they expect to hear? Well, if they like the show, uh, the good news is that it's basically the same interaction of the show, but more of it. Mm. In years past, because of the uh, confines of doing a television show, even though it was a half-hour TV show, we were only actually on for 22 minutes, and once you take the commercials out, and then if you allow for the introductions and the throws to the commercial breaks, and don't forget you can see this on the web at this, that, and the other, and coming up at the, what, all that. If you strip all that out, it was basically 20 minutes of programming. This is 40 to 45 with all the same voices, myself, Mike Lupica, Bob Ryan, Christine Brennan, Manish Mehta, Leslie Visser, Bill Roden, Adam Schefter, just, you know, all the people that you've come to know from that show. But in a, you know, we get to cover instead of having to cut off. There are so many segments of the sports reporters that we were all just, myself, Mike Bob, were one comment away from that perfect comment. You know, we were like, wait, wait, I had this one thing I wanted to say. And, and the producer would always say, no, we got to go to commercial break. So this now includes all of those. Yep. So uh, you get those. Plus we do our parting shots at the end. As nice. we've always done the little 45-second vignettes. And it's twice a week versus once. So it's on Mondays and it's on Fridays. Wow. And it's usually available by mid-morning. And we get to talk about everything that happened the weekend before and everything that's coming up the weekend of. So, so far we're enjoying it. We're not pros at it yet like you are, Brian, but uh, we do enjoy it. I, I, I see you did tell me when we last saw each other how much we were going to enjoy this world of, of podcasting, just the freedom and the liberation of the, of the form of communication that it is. And you were right. And so I'm flattered to be on your podcast. And I'm really grateful to be able to be uh, doing one that I'm taking part in myself. You bet. Well, you're going to find out it's a very intimate audience. They love you, and they won't be able to get enough of you. And uh, we're so appreciative. You wrote Tuesdays with Maury. We do our podcasts on Tuesdays, and we're, we were thankful to have a Tuesday with Mitch. My pleasure, Brian. You're, you you're a very unique man and, uh, and very, I think, spiritual in, mm -hmm. in a way. Maybe that's not a word that they often use with you uh, first up, but I think you are. And and you've got a really good heart and a great way of communicating. I sense that right from the very first. You know, I, I get asked to speak at different places, and, you know, I don't often say yes, to be honest with you. I, I probably turn down 90% of the requests, just time reasons or things like that. But the minute I met you, and you've asked me to talk to your group twice, the first time I met you, I remember coming home and telling my wife, this was an unusual one here. This, there's a guy here who's really unique. He's Irish. He's built the stuff from scratch. He, he speaks without ever saying, you know, you know, or things like that. He's got this amazing way of communicating. And I really like this guy. This is a lot of fun. And Because uh, I remember she said to me, really? Because I don't always, sometimes, you, you know, it can be, it's not that it's not a little enjoyable, dry. but there's a lot of stuff around it, yeah, and you, you don't know. I try to connect with the audience, but if an audience is collected, strictly for, you know, like um, annual sales reports of an insurance company or something like that. It's kind of hard to get them inspired. Yeah. But your boy, the people that you bring out, I mean, man, they are they are obviously into it, and they're very uh, enthused by what you do, and that has to come from the top. And everybody that I've met from your wife to your kids to your brother to people on your staff, 
they really seem happy, and I, I make great note of that when I mm. find people who are happy in their workplace. So you must be doing something right, Brian, and I'm flattered to be asked on your program, and I thank you. Well, thank you for the kind words, my friend, and I appreciate it. Until we do it again, I hope you guys all enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to head over to and leave a review on iTunes. We're also on Android. By the way, so is the Sports Reporter, so now you can head over there as well. Uh, we love hearing your feedback, so remember those reviews help spread the word. They'll do that for us. You can do that for Mitch. Remember, our goal is to positively influence as many folks as we can, so be sure to share this show with as many people as you can. Who do you know that would use a good word of encouragement from Mitch Albom today? So as I finish here today, I leave you with the words that my coach, Maury, left to me, my grandfather, Harry, and he used to say this, May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the winds always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time.